Phil. Hey, Laurie, how are you? I'm doing really well. I'm going to welcome you, Phil, to Super Belly Bros Season 2, Episode 7. Yes, yeah, 7. Thanks for joining us again for the Super Belly Bros Podcast. We've got three great movies uh, to review for you this week, as well as a couple of other bits and bobs. What are the films, Phil? This week we are reviewing La La Land, the much-anticipated musical thingy-majiggy... Check this out, check this out. It's got so many Golden Globes, it's practically its own solar system. <laughs> Yep. So La La Land, we're finally going to review that. Uh, the new film from Damien Chazelle, is it? Yes. Starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. I've gone to see A Monster Calls. Mm. And Laurie, you kept with the monster theme and you've gone to see Monster Trucks. <laughs> yes, I have. It's slightly different films, it has to be said. All of that to look forward to. Yep. And we're also going to do your emails and tweets, as always, towards the end of the episode. Thank you so much for being in touch. And we've got movie news as making a comeback this week. A little special appearance. A little bit of movie news. We won't spoil that here. Wait for that. And also, we might do a little bit of chatting about trilogies. If there's time, we'll throw something out there. Yes, Phil. And that's pretty much it, isn't it, man? Yeah, I'll say again, do check us out on Patreon. Thank you very much to our Patreon sponsors. You can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Bros if you want to get involved in supporting this show. And also superbaileybros at gmail.com at superbaileybros are the two ways you can get in touch with us to share your thoughts, berate us for wrong views, or endorse us, of course. We love the plus ones and minus ones for our opinions, don't we? We do, uh, and I desperately need a couple of plus ones, I think. I know, I'm sorry, I haven't done that You're slightly tearing away, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to see, you know, we're recording this, Phil, on a Thursday. Maybe by the weekend I will have produced that counter to show who is currently in the lead, whose opinions are really worth listening to. I think we know it's you at the moment, but hopefully that will change. Who knows, maybe this week I'll get a couple of points. And just before we dive in, Phil, you'll understand why I say dive in. How's your little swimming New Year's resolution going? Very good, went yesterday. Nicely done. In your face. Off we go. Ready, set, Swim! <laughs> CLO in the middle has got the white cap, the world record holder and defending champion. Come on, keep it going. Hey, if you've not seen the Trollolol song, that'll mean nothing to you. But if you've seen it, hopefully you'll be rolling in the aisles. You'll be lolling, dare I say. Do you know you ruined my joke? I said you'll be lolling. Oh, right. Uh. Listeners, we've been to see La La Land and probably uh, a load of you guys would have seen it too because it came out last Thursday. But we saw it weeks and weeks and weeks ago. We did. <laughs> we saw it months ago. We went there. So we went to a long lead screening, uh, absolutely packed full. That was the Odeon in Leicester Square. And that can hold what, like thousands of people? It was a very big theatre, wasn't it? And it was chocker, chocker, chocker. Yeah, it definitely was. And you know what? I think it probably deserves to have that audience. Whatever you want to say about this film, it's unique, isn't it? It definitely is doing something a bit original but in a kind of classic way so it ticks all the boxes i think for a lot of uh, cinema fans definitely this is ryan gosling and emma stone starring as la hopefuls ryan gosling's character seb wants to be a pure jazz pianist jazz man jazz <laughs> yeah man yeah jazz and emma stone wants to be an actress of course she's currently working at a studio lot coffee shop i didn't know they existed that's quite good fun where she serves you know people who work in the studios while she hightails it off to audition whenever she can and Ryan Gosling is kind of making ends meet playing terrible what Christmas jazz on pianos at restaurants he's sort of things. a piano man for like a restaurant yeah that's right whereas secretly he wants to open his own club and start a proper pure jazz <laughs> jazz <laughs> can't get away from the jazz love the jazz you know and and we follow them as they kind of end up meeting uh, in 
a few chance encounters, and then a relationship blossoms and blooms out of it all while they try to chase down their dreams in the frenetic LA. And thrown into the mix are a few Broadway musical numbers. And, and a couple of dancing bits as well. Yeah, some great dancing moments, some really vivid costumes. It is like a mishmash of the West End and Hollywood. It's not quite a 1950s musical, though, is it? No, but it's sort of a modern twist of it all, isn't it? Which quite nicely ties in with the whole wanting to bring back jazz and make people appreciate jazz yes, elements exactly. of the film. You kind of think the director may have written himself, director and writer, in fact, may have written himself in a tiny bit into this screenplay. And of course it is. Damien Chazelle, the director of a film which I absolutely loved last year, Whiplash. Yeah. One of is, the best films. He must be one of the hottest rising talents in Hollywood right now because I can't believe that he was able to make this film in the way that he's made it. He seems to have had a loss of creative freedom. You know, obviously Whiplash really astounded people. And wow, I mean, as a young guy, I think he's in his early 30s, he is leading the pack. He certainly does seem to be heading in the right direction for being a notable filmmaker. I think that's undeniable, isn't it, Laurie? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one to watch. Should we play a clip and then review the movie? Yes. Yes. I got a call back. What? Come on. <laughs> for what? For a TV show. The one that I was telling you about earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC? Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> that's really incredible. Exciting. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, can, I can take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. <laughs> well, jazz again. <laughs> There's so much jazz in this film, I can't get away from it. You might have heard some noodling jazz in the background of that scene. That is uh, Ryan Gosling's Seb chatting to Emma Stone about the fact that she's had a callback to this random audition that she was a bit down on before, but now that they kind of want her, she's, you know, feeling good about it. It's almost like they've just heard the clip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> Laurie, what did you make of this movie? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a long time ago that we saw it, of course, but... It has stayed with me much better than I thought it would at the time. This is one of those movies where I'm quite glad, Phil, we've had a few months to ruminate on it. Well, I'm quite surprised because I remember talking to you after we went to the screening. Strongly the, down, on, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, just walking down those London streets and you seemed quite negative about the film. Now, look, I mean, this is the thing. This way my mind, the way my mind works, Phil, is the things that stand out badly always hit me first which sounds like a sad thing doesn't it and, and so what well, after, I, after i sort of understood those bits that's when the rest of the good the good things can hit me with it and so there are i think some problems with this film i think you have to admit that as well phil yeah but i think i was i was more positive about it initially and actually maybe in time you've grown to like it more than i have. really you think so which i'm a bit shocked by well listen we'll, we, <laughs> we'll come back to this scintillating you know tease in a minute but or you two. said this and ooh, I, said that. Uh, I think it's really great i really loved the atmosphere and the tone of this film the the key thing that made me sort of fall in love with it as i thought about it more is the performances by ryan Gosling and emma stone because you know i can't help contrasting it with another recent screen pairing Allied, starring Marion Cotillard and Brad Pitt, in which there is absolutely no chemistry. It's a chemistry, chemistry set without the chemistry, whereas this film has so much of it, it's like Damien Chazelle's found the perfect formula. I believe completely 
that they are these kind of melodramatic, hopeful semi-losers, right? Uh, who kind of laugh at the curveballs that life throws at them and slightly feel sorry for themselves, but then pick themselves back up and try again. And I just believe that their chance encounters feel like chance encounters. I believe that they suddenly randomly decide to be interested in each other. It's just a very organic, very natural love story and yet it's totally unrealistic because it's in La La Land. It's in beautiful Hollywood with incredible vistas and they dance around lampposts and they float up into the middle of an observatory. But yet I believed it all. I, I agree, man. I think the pairing of the two is really lovely and there's a, just a natural chemistry in a very unnatural way. Like you were saying, I think... <laughs> I mean, you, you sort of take it all the words out of <laughs> my mouth, man, which is a bit annoying. I think this film is very charming and... What La La Land is trying to do, trying to harken back to old school movies, that old school world and reality of uh, of musicals and charming Hollywood, is actually a really nice way to kind of put in a new fresh spin on a, on a movie romance, I think. It's sort of modernising old school love, if that makes any sense whatsoever. No, it does. I felt like he began writing a musical... But what he ended up with was a 1950s rom-com because this had bells ringing in my mind with things like Pillow Talk, if you remember that, the kind of easy chemistry between Doris Day and... Is it Cary Grant in that? I can't honestly remember. Yeah, something. it's not 1950s, is it? Is that earlier? I think that's 50s. I'm pretty oh, yeah. sure Pillow Talk is 50s. But there is that kind of warm, old-school romance where all the cliches are okay. I think this is a sort of film that is connecting with audiences because it is... It optimistic for a modern age. Well, I think. it's willfully nostalgic, but yet somehow has its sights set on the future. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that conversation that Ryan Gosling's character has about jazz and how he wants to keep it pure and he doesn't want to modernise it. He wants people just to appreciate what jazz is. And You're talking about when he chats to John Legend, aren't you? Yeah, John, John Legend's Legend. like, hey man, you can't. Jazz is about the future. You can't keep looking back. <laughs> and and Ryan Gosling's saying, no, like there's something amazing. You just need to point point your attention at it and notice it i feel like maybe this is uh, damien chazelle trying to draw attention to an older film well and actually phil i have to say we're not going to do it here listeners but you can easily find online there are some explicit references to old films as well and a lot of people have picked this up in some of the framing and and the shooting there are specific homages uh, to old movies including a james dean film i can't remember all of them off the top of my head and i didn't notice them <laughs> so i'm not going to take that credit but look online it is quite interesting but I think it's fair to say it is not entirely perfect, like you were saying earlier, Laurie. Yeah. There are some flaws. The flaws for me, ultimately and unfortunately, come down to the music. I think the music is good, but the mixing isn't quite right. And particularly the words that go with the songs, they never quite land as well as you hope. No, that first one where they're in gridlocked traffic on the highway and everyone jumps out of their cars and, and starts, starts dancing around. And like right like at you, basically. You can barely hear what they're saying. And actually, I think that's consistent through pretty much all of the uh, major songs. The only one which slightly stuck with me in terms of lyrics is a sort of slower one that Ryan Gosling keeps on returning to. Uh, it's and it's, it's played about eight times in the film, yeah. And I do think some credit needs to be given to Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling because they do sing and you can clearly see they put time and effort and energy into it. But I don't think they're good enough singers really to pull it off. And actually, having watched quite a few musicals recently and reflecting on La La Land now again... You really need, there was a reason why these people were the kind of the triple threat, the all singing, all dancing, all acting, good looking guys and gals 
It's because they're really, really talented. And those sort of people you needed to have to make those musical numbers work and, and to be able to Gene deliver. Kelly, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, all those guys. Exactly. They're super, super talented. And they're the reason why they were movie stars back in the day. I think Ryan Gosling is really, really talented, but for a modern sort of film set. He's a really good com- comedic actor. He's, he's so It's very funny, the film. We haven't said that yet. but Yeah, yeah he's very funny in the film. He, he's very charming in the film. He performs well. But he's not a great singer and neither is Emma Stone. And in some ways, I slightly wished they just abandoned the idea of doing musical bits and instead just had them dance and have kind of a classic soundtrack. And I think the film would have been a bit better. No, I completely agree. I felt like the songs basically ended up intruding on the film itself. And it's weird. I think it was just, there's something about the way the lyrics of the songs, as you say, the way that they're launched into and transitioned out of, it doesn't make it feel as if the songs are telling the story or are really actually properly woven into the story. Instead, it feels like they're sort of embellishments and you you sit there thinking, now I'm going to have to hear them sing about this thing that's just happened. As opposed to, a song in Singing in the Rain, which either had absolutely nothing to do with anything because you knew you were in for an all-sing-your-dancing number, uh, like uh, Moses Supposes, for example. But then there are those songs which sort of burst out and, and feel like an expression of the emotion in the well, scene, like Good Morning. Feeling and how they're doing it. Exactly. And you can see there's one particular number where you can tell that they had tried to do that. And this is the one which all the film posters have where they're dancing around the lamppost and they sing to each other. I was really frustrated with the lyrics to that song because it was clearly trying to do that sort of let's tell the story with music let's expand this moment with song to make you feel it deeper but it just fails because actually they introduced new stuff in the song that hadn't had enough sort of build up to it at all and because of the nature of the music itself the music sort of didn't earn the right to have those lyrics on top of it i like the dancing part of that number just incidentally it wasn't amazing dancing but it was but nice. i enjoyed it yeah. i enjoyed yeah, it very yeah, much yeah. The, the the song that really highlighted for me the issues with the film is there's one scene in which Emma Stone is at her apartment and all of her friends are con- trying to convince her to come out and dance and, and go well. out and meet somebody in the social areas of LA. And they sort of do this, oh, we're getting ready, we're getting dressed up and we're movie stars in our shabby little apartment. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's put together particularly well. I don't think it's staged very well. I don't think it's shot very well. I don't think really... The, the film commits enough to the idea of the song. What they're trying to do is that sort of getting ready number that lots of films have done in the past. But I get the feeling that Damien Chazelle is kind of a fan of movies, of musical movies, but he doesn't necessarily know how to make them. And so it becomes sort of almost like a fan's tribute to those sort yes, of films yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than really understanding the techniques, the the effort, the staging that needs to go into well, That's musicals. kind of what I mean about that. Well, the reason it didn't work is that it's just not quite constructed properly. It's slightly half-hearted, but yeah. he's trying his best. He just doesn't have the talent to really pull them off. But then the rest of the film is so lovely and so well put together it's very warm. that he just about gets away with it, I think. Yeah, completely. Another thing that I'm actually disappointed in is that if you took away the songs and the considerable chemistry between Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, there'd be very, very little left to work with. This story has almost nothing to it and it's almost totally unremarkable, even annoying in places. And I, I do think for a really top draw film, the story has to be there as well. But it's playing into Hollywood's hands, isn't it? And I think maybe we need to talk a bit about all this uh, Oscar buzz and all the nominations it's getting. Mm. Is this the right time to address it now? 
We can throw it in here quickly, yeah? I It really wouldn't surprise me if this film ends up taking away a lot of awards, even Best Picture, Best Director. Come on, Best Picture can't, surely. I It wouldn't surprise me. Hollywood loves a film about itself. And, <laughs> That's true. And it's about musicals. It's about the whole business of Hollywood. It's it's about LA. It's kind of, if those are the people who are voting for it, yeah, sure. it's ticking all those boxes. And they love it. They love seeing actors when they break out of their sort of traditional roles. So if they're singing and dancing, yeah, yeah it wouldn't surprise okay, me if okay. it takes home a lot of. A well, then Hell Caesar the... did all that, didn't it? No, not not at all like <laughs> yeah, this. I'm not at all like this. So I, I, I'm slightly predicting it now, listeners. I think this is going to be taking home statues. Well, let's see, listeners. I want to know what you think about this. One other thing, I, and then you know we can move into bonuses and grades, all that stuff, Phil. That I noticed, and I wonder what you think about this is. I ha- I feel like the film is not very self-aware. I think the script and some of the sort of construction of it just seems a little bit naive. And I don't worry, I can back that up. <laughs> I don't know the guy. Uh, but for example, this film is about two people who really want to make it big in LA, fully aware of the fact that some people never make it big and they try their whole lives to make it big, it doesn't happen. And we're supposed to sort of root for Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone when we know they have made it big. They have all absolutely succeeded you know, so well. They are the dream. I mean, it's unbelievable the, the success that they have received and achieved. Sure, they're very good at what they do, but they've achieved it. And I just thought the opening number featuring so many essentially faceless actors singing and dancing, jumping out of their cars. The only reason these people have been cast in La La Land is because they are all chasing that dream too. And I found myself looking at the people who got to sing a line in the song or who got to stare at the camera for a little or bit Or do longer. a little bit of a flip. And, and you, in their head, you're thinking, after watching this film, I'm thinking, they're thinking, yeah, yeah, I really got, you know, a good 10 seconds of screen time there. That's going to be my, my big break. And you can think, well, how many of the people in that number are going to, you know, that's going to be it. That'll be the highlight of their career. And do you see what I mean? There's just a slight lack of self-awareness there because the film itself is kind of represents uh, the, the Hollywood ideal that of it all yeah exactly yeah. And, then there's, and then also the jazz in the film which we're making fun of there are so many oh pompous speeches about jazz that I just can't handle it I mean I slightly thought that about him in Whiplash uh, Damien Chazelle but he gets away with it because in that film the jazz nuts are kind of crazy <laughs> like jk simmons's character is absolutely yeah. crazy so it's okay he can go crazy about jazz because he's a bit crazy and so is andrew right the drummer he's mm. he's he's got a couple of screws loose i think whereas in this film ryan gosling is supposed to be so cool he's sort of a hero isn't amazing he? because he's so pure about his jazz and you know i've been to a new york jazz club and there's a point where a guy just spat into his trumpet like i'm not kidding he's went <laughs> and everyone around me was nodding like yeah jazz <laughs> jazz and jazz, i was thinking where jazz, am i what jazz. am i doing here <laughs> So, yeah, there's just a little bit of unself-aware going on. I think that probably speaks to the fact that he can't, you can't not be a young guy. This is his second major feature film. It's not a very mature film. It's just a very enjoyable film. But it's nicely optimistic, I think. That's yeah, a yeah, nice definitely. way to So for me, man, I'll grade it. I will give this film an A-. minus. I think I will agree. Good stuff. Not quite an A for you. No. Like I say, it's not it was fully borderline. It borderline, I might give it a B plus, but I think I'm going to agree A-. minus. Cool. Any bonuses? I mean, my only bonus is the fact that I've actually, I've studied jazz oh, have as, you? Uh, oh, have for you one really? of my modules and I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so I don't really get jazz. My big issue with jazz is sometimes a bit like just play the normal notes, yeah. which is entirely the, not the point of jazz at all, is it? You've got to feel the motion, not the notes. Notes between the notes. Exactly. Man. I, just, I don't get it. Just play Miles Davis. I like that. Well, he was the guy who said And that. I like listening to a CD of it because I know what to expect. Mm, you missed what I said there about Miles Davis, but I won't repeat it. Spare your blushes, Phil. Oh no, what did you say? Don't worry. No. 
welcome back to the place for the hottest news, the trendiest gossip, and all the latest emerging trends. You're here with the Super Bailey Bros in the Movie News Studio. Do we do gossip? I don't think we do gossip. Silence, little man. Okay, (laughs) movie story number one (laughs) is Emma Watson's performance, singing performance as Belle in the upcoming Beauty and the Beast live-action remake has caused a stir. Longest headline ever. Sorry. It's really hard doing headlines in movie news. Yeah, apparently Disney have released a little bit of a sound clip of Emma Watson singing in the new live-action Beauty and the Beast. That's right. So I think a doll was uh, recorded on YouTube. Someone had a demo doll that played a little sound chip of Emma Watson singing, and, and Disney didn't want that to be like the first anyone heard of <laughs> Emma Watson's performance. So they very quickly released an actual soundbite. And I wonder whether that explains, well, what you're about to hear. (laughs) Yeah, let's play it. Shall we? Okay, Mm. here it is. Well, there you go. There is Emma Watson's debut. It's weird how much it sounds like Emma Watson. I know that sounds stupid, but you know when some people sing and it just doesn't sound, it just sounds like a singing voice. Her voice sounds like Emma Watson, exactly as you'd imagine Emma Watson would sound if she was singing because it's just her voice. I wonder, you know, whether this is something that the audio director has said. Don't cloak your voice. People want Emma Watson singing. You need to sound like Emma Watson singing. Not very French, though, is it? Not very uh, Belle. There's a couple of odd things about this. I think number one is the fact that it is just the original song. Even down to the instrumentation, it's still light and airy and orchestral. They don't appear to have done anything different with it other than get her to go um, alarming. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's that's the big moment in that line, isn't it? Alarming. Alarming. <laughs> but she doesn't do it like that. She says alarming. You know, as if, <laughs> that was alarming. <laughs> slightly, <laughs> sorry, it laughing. slightly bothers me, the auto-tune, though. That's well, the thing and that's the other worried. major thing on there. And I, I know a lot of people are just like, oh, get a grip on it, everyone. Everyone uses auto-tune. Either people say that or they say, what? There's no auto-tune in that. I would say there is auto-tune in it, which we demonstrate that film. What, are you going to auto-tune yeah, me? Yeah, I'll auto-tune you. Why don't you sing that line? True, it may be a bit alarming. What key are you singing in? Well, you're going to auto-tune me. I was <laughs> okay. deliberately doing it bad. All right, okay, can I have a go? Who'd have ever thought that this could be... There we go. So, listeners, if you heard that, that's how to recognise auto-tune. You can be a little bit subtle with it, but I I would put a guarantee on it that that has been seriously doctored by the pros. I don't get it, though, because what's happened to the good old days, and maybe we're a bit old men here, Laurie, I don't know. Maybe I am. I am going to agree with you, probably. (laughs) We're in the same boat. Even in the Disney animations, when they're doing all those sort of things, the voice of Jasmine wasn't the voice that they used then to sing Mm. and do the songs. And for years, donkey's years, in fact, the way that you did musicals and everything like that was you just had an actor who can be very charming and do a nice little acting and performances and everything like that. And then they lip sync it to uh, uh, somebody else singing. But Phil, you're forgetting that even in Singing in the Rain, this was a scandal, wasn't it? Lena Lamont doesn't even sing. Do you not remember that's part of the whole scandal? Yeah, but would you be that upset if somebody said, oh, Emma Watson doesn't sing in the new Beauty and the Beast movie? 
I think some people might be, and, and I think you're looking at it the wrong way. Uh, you need to look at it with the positive spin and think how amazing it will be that it really is Emma Watson singing. I think that that's literally a draw, isn't it? Mm, well, there you go. I guess it's up to each and every individual person to decide whether or not it's a good thing Emma Watson singing or not. Do you think this you know, bodes anything for the film itself? Can you spy anything that they're doing with it? It's going to be rubbish. <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> I just, I think I've made my points very clear. It's got Dan about... Stevens as the Beast, and I quite like Dan I, Stevens. You know what my issue with the Beast is? Tell he me. looks too small. I haven't seen a picture of him. Is he, he looks too, too like tiny, and so does Gaston. Gaston should be played by Luke Evans. He, Luke Evans, big burly guy, looks tiny. I think it should have been played by like The Rock or something like that. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah, he needs to be a guy Gaston. who's huge, and he's like, I'm Mr. Manly. Could you kind of imagine Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Gaston? He would have been brilliant, actually. That's <laughs> you know a very I mean? good point, Phil. Well, Hollywood, I hope you're listening. Okay, is that the end of that news story? Yes. If you like the sound of Bell, then email in and let us know and explain exactly why. I'd love to hear that. If you think, what a load of rubbish, email in and make me feel better. I certainly would describe the current tidbits about that film as a little bit alarming. <laughs> <laughs> is that all for movie news that's it for movie news uh, listeners don't forget to let us know your thoughts on the hottest news stories and to share them with us when you find them call the news desk now on 555 <laughs> for live news reporting or tweet us at our 24 hour live cast and none of those things exist get in touch superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on twitter thanks Laurie, do your best monster voice. Okay, now the thing is, Phil, I've already heard the monster in this film, so I'm just going to try and blank that from my memory. Well, give me, give me the, what does my monster look like? Uh, I need to get into character. Imagine a furry turtle, but giant. Hello, Phil. <laughs> hey, turtle. What? What do I ask you? <laughs> How was that? I didn't know. Okay, now yeah, let me give you one, and then we'll, okay, we'll do fine. some review. Uh, your monster, Phil, is very, very skinny, incredibly tall, um, with big reptilian wings. Hello, <laughs> oh, no. This is really bad, isn't it? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, I think you know exactly oh, what I mean, monster. Are you here to review the film? I am. <laughs> Can you go back to Phil's voice? Okay. Hey. Check out that voice rap, man. <laughs> well, both of us, I'm sure, will be getting phone calls in a matter of minutes. Maybe we'll be able to challenge Liam Neeson. Oh, really? Is it him? Yes, Liam Neeson voices the voice in A Monster Calls. The film you're actually reviewing, yeah. That had a purpose. It did. A Monster Calls is directed by J.A. Bayona. Yes, I've heard of the guy. He did The Impossible, wasn't it? Is that what it's called? He did do The Impossible. That was the true story about the tsunami uh, family uh, trapped in the tsunami and separated. Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor, Nicole Kidman, I believe. Mm, I think so. And Tom Holland, who is now playing Peter Parker in Civil War and the Marvel films. So this film follows Connor O'Malley. He is a young boy whose mum is played by Felicity Jones. His mum, unfortunately, is very sick, very unwell. And this film follows a rather extraordinary moment as Connor eventually meets a monster voiced by Liam Neeson who seems to be visiting him during the night at 12.07pm every single night. And this monster has promised to tell Connor O'Malley three stories and then Connor must tell him the fourth story. Right. And that's the main device of the film and it might just be that the stories that the monster's telling Connor has some parallels to his current life. Interesting. Here is a clip of the monster and Connor kind of going on a little bit of an excursion to vent some frustrations. It's pretty apparent. Okay. Tell me, Connor O'Malley, 
What shall I destroy next? What? It is most satisfying, I can assure you. Come on, tell me. What should I destroy? Snap the chimney? The chimney. Next. Throw away their beds. Smash the furniture. There you go. What do you think of Liam Neeson's voice? I didn't recognise him at all. That's pretty good. It sounds like the most animated. <laughs> do you get the joke? Uh, <laughs> I've heard him in quite some time. Well, you surely have heard him already, as he's done voice work much before. He did uh, Aslan. Aslan, yeah. Yeah, but he Cross played Aslan in a very calm, stoic manner. This guy, you know, he's a monster. Yeah, and I think maybe the first thing to say about this film is I quite like the design of the monster. Bar one little problem. Right. He has the dumbest looking face you've ever seen. <laughs> he looks so dumb. He looks like a sort of alien that you'd shoot in a um, like Halo game. Do you know what I mean? And he just doesn't seem to have a nose or and his cheekbones are a bit too big and everything like that. What's annoying is that it's shot really nicely and there's some really nice shots where you get to see the height of this monster. He's a very tall monster. He's got these lovely uh, sort of sinewy branches interweaving over his body. He's made of wood, isn't he? Yeah, he's a yew tree. And also there's a quite a nice effect where underneath the, the branches he's sort of burning with lava and heat and things. Oh, wow. But then whenever he's actually talking, they show his face and he just looks so dopey and annoying. I wonder why they did that. Now, this is based on a book, isn't it? So it's based on a book which was finished off by Patrick Ness. The original idea for the book was unfortunately not able to be completed. And he is actually the writer of the screenplay as well. So, so you'd expect a pretty faithful adaptation then? I haven't looked into the book itself, but I'm pretty certain it isn't a faithful ad- adaptation of the, the original. But I don't think the script is actually that good. Oh, no. Unfortunately, when it comes to the um, more poignant moments in the film, there's just some unbelievable words. They're, they're very scripty words rather than actual words that people say. Well, in the trailer, the one that stood out to me was Felicity Jones, who unfortunately is picking up a bit of a habit for this in my mind delivering a bad line is if you need to break things then by god you break them exactly who says by god break them especially when you're a teenage mum sort of thing well is it set in modern times as well yeah yeah it's set Mm. in current day times and that kind of leads me on to another criticism i have unfortunately felicity jones is just too young even even for a teenage mum somebody who's had a child very young she just seems it doesn't match up. It doesn't fit. It doesn't sit well. I think, you know, she's older than she looks, Felicity Jones. She's one of these people that Hollywood loves because she can play kind of any age. But then if she's older she's, than she's she older looks... Than me, Phil. She's four years older than I am. But if she's older than she looks, that's not a good thing because she needs to look the right age, doesn't she? Sure, sure. So she just looks too young. And that's no real fault of her. I just think maybe if it was cast slightly better... It would the film would have a different feel because you'd feel more of a bond between the mother and her, her son Connor. Yeah, sure. What's the relationship like between 
uh, Connor and and the mum in this. Is it believable? Do you believe that kind of dynamic of the son dealing with his mum's terrible illness? I mean, that is essentially what the whole film is about. It's a, a young boy processing uh, grief and pain and the awkwardness of having somebody who's very, very unwell in their life and all the all the turmoil that brings in. His dad is absent, but kind of is popping in and out of his life, played by to- Toby Keeble. Oh, really? Yep. Last He's scene quite in- a young looking guy. Yeah, but he seems older as well at the same time. Okay. And then you've got Sigourney Weaver, who plays a British mum, uh, grandmother. Her Apparently, I was reading some notes which said, oh, she seamlessly slipped into a British accent because her own grandmother was British. And the whole, <laughs> time, do with the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking, she's rubbish at this British accent. Oh, no. Her American sort of twang keeps on slipping in. And I like Sigourney Weaver. Um, but those are kind of all just little nitpicks, really. They're not major issues with the film. They're just little things that bothered me. My major issue with the film is that I don't really know who's it f- who is it for. Because it's a 12A. It's quite a serious somber film about something which is complex and difficult to deal with uh, a sick parent a very sick parent and not being not really knowing how to feel about it but it's a it's an 11 year old boy's view of it all and the way he's dealing with it is with a monster and so i feel like it's a film which is designed for children to kind of give them a complex emotional drama that they can understand and access and yet 12 seems too old to really engage with the film. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Perhaps it is aimed at people for whom this kind of thing has been a reality in their life. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say I haven't had to deal with any of this sort of stuff. And I'm sure some people will have seen this film and it's reflective of their own situation or something that's happened in their family and it might resonate with them much more than it did with me. Do you think that is, can you imagine that being effective? I know it's hard for you to say, as you just said, it it doesn't apply to you personally, but do you get the impression that it could be emotionally fulfilling or satisfying? Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily because the film is providing that. I think it's that it's a natural space for you to fill with your own difficulties i think right, okay and it's and it and it gives you a nice way for you to think through the things that you might have experienced i'm assuming i hope that makes some sort no, of no, sense it does yeah the other major issue is i think this whole device of a monster calling a monster coming to tell stories incidentally the stories are told much like the the animation in uh, harry potter the deathly hallows oh sure you know the the story of the the three yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite the three brothers style yeah it's got quite a nice aesthetic to it but that's very much uh, reminiscent of what this film uses to tell these stories the stories are just a bit vague and uncertain and i kind of even at the end of the film i was like i don't really know how they were related to the story this film is both a bit too complex and a bit too clever and a bit too obvious and a bit straight down the line and as you were saying we talked a bit about it i asked laurie what he thought of this film and he sort of slightly rolled his eyes and said well it's a metaphor isn't it and and i think <laughs> it me sound too you know cynical well i'm just giving a little picture to the real admit, world after seeing that trailer, no I don't, <laughs> it's not a nice world for people to live in and after seeing that clip it looks like i may have been wrong about this film on the surface of it i just thought it looked like well i know what this is about straight away and that sort of removes my interest in it but i think i might be wrong i hope i'm wrong it's, but the thing is, it's kind of both. You're exactly right. It is a meta- metaphor and it slightly clubs you over the head with it. But at the same time, it's a slightly confusing metaphor, which if you think about it, maybe it trickles down into places you don't really realise. Okay. The one thing I will say this film really did surprise me with is with that that crescendo moment, that Connor O'Malley telling his fourth story, the one which he has to tell to the monster. Yeah. 
I didn't really see it going in that direction and it was quite surprising, quite refreshing. Really? And that little moment I thought, oh, maybe I've got this film wrong. But then it quickly returns back into sort of its natural where you think it might go plot. So it's not trying to break the break boundaries, it's just trying to be expressive. Well, I don't know. I think maybe the film thinks it's doing something revolutionary and yet I felt like I've seen a film like this already. Okay. If that makes sense. What's your grade, Phil? Sounds like you're rounding up to it. Probably a B, just a B, maybe a B minus. A lot of the direction and the production was good and there's a lot of care and talent put into it. Unfortunately, it's not the freshest idea. It's not the freshest tale. I really do think if somebody is uh, dealing with loss or a family has been dealing with illness or anything like that, I think maybe it could be a home run for them. But for me, I haven't haven't been dealing with those sort of issues. And so it didn't quite connect as much. It is quite a heavy emotional tale. I say that. You've got to gear yourself up for it. Well, thanks very much, Phil. That's great. Uh, any bonus thoughts? Doesn't yeah, a couple of bonus thoughts. A couple of <laughs> okay. bonus thoughts. Um, so art features quite a lot in the film. Yes. Um, Conor O'Malley uh, is drawing quite often. And it's quite nice shots of him doing pencil drawings and things like that. And his uh, his mum, Felicity Jones, is also an artist. In her past, she, she wanted to go to art school and things like that. And I just so happen to know what kids can draw like because <laughs> there is no way this kid drew these drawings. That is just ridiculous. <laughs> Even even her artistic mum, who might have gone to art college, there's no way she did her drawings. Well, seriously, and it's so irritating because it's all tied in with like style, and they've got these multimedia pieces, and they've got a sketchbook filled with perfect little illustrations for each page. It's just let not me tell just you, jealousy, Phil. Let me tell you, when I, I've I've had sketchbooks in the past, do you know how many pages have just got like the start of a nose that's gone wrong, <laughs> and I've just crossed it out and moved I on know, to the next I page? I can relate to that one for sure. My sketchbook is not like a tour de force of uh, a portfolio. And so I was a little bit disappointed that this film is like, yeah, this kid did this. It's very tempting for filmmakers. You can see what happens, can't you? They're like, can we just put like a rubbish kid's drawing in here? I think they should have put a rubbish. No, no, get the art guys, you know. (laughs) I think they should have put some rubbish drawings in there. Or or at least try to get some actual kids to do the art. But I think they're just a little bit too concerned with making it look pretty. Yeah, mistake. There you go. That's my bonus. Slightly <laughs> revealing my lack of art skills. No, thanks very much, Phil. And uh, thanks very much for calling Monster. Bye for now. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, dear. Laurie, are you more of a bicycle guy or a, a, a tricycle guy? Is that a real question? Yeah. Bicycle. Really? You think yeah, bicycle's more Yeah, when was the last time better? you rode a tricycle? Trilogy's more... <laughs> tricycle's more stable. <laughs> You, you've shown your hand now, Phil. There's don't no don't include that. Please, no. <laughs> don't, don't. Come on, that was really bad. Don't, please. I prefer don't. a bicycle, yes. You prefer the bicycle. But the, the tricycle, you've got the three wheels, you know, propping it up. It's very stable. It's more comfortable. You've got time to sort of sit into it a bit. Mm. I sense you're building up to something here. I'm building up to trilogies. Hooray. Much like a tricycle. Are they more stable? Are they better? Are they more comfortable? That's a very interesting metaphor, because in what way do you stand on a trilogy or sit on it or ride it? The franchise stands on the trilogy oh, or rides the trilogy, doesn't it? Mm. He's really thought about all the angles. Amazing. Mm. All right, what have you got? Well, basically, I was thinking about trilogies and partly inspired by Rogue One. You know, We talked about that as being a standalone film. We That's kind of what we were expecting. And then it actually turns out to be a lot more kind of embroiled in the in the original films. I was thinking about the Star Wars trilogy as a whole, and I was thinking about A New Hope and how it just completely is just an independent film. Even if no other films got made, that film exists. And then I was thinking that 
Empire Strikes Back is widely regarded as one of the best, well, is the best one in the Star Wars One of the best films ever made as well. Mm. Yeah, and one of the best films ever. And then you've got Return of the Jedi kind of closing out the trilogy. And I was wondering, I have a theory. You get two types of trilogies, basically. There's the the second one's good or there's the third one's good. That's it. You can't, you you never get a Well, never just the first. The first one, it, it doesn't count because it's an independent thing. It does what it does. And so, because it's not comparing to anyone, it's just the the bench setter. So you mean that's out of the running? It's out of the running. It doesn't count. That's Star Wars is Star Wars. Nothing really. Nobody really talks about it. It's just Star Wars. That's what it is. Mm. Empire Strikes Back is the one which you then compare to Star Wars. Is it better? Is it worse? And then Return of the Jedi, you compare to both films. And I hear yeah. what you're saying, but I mean, the Matrix trilogy only. No one talks about the second and third films. They only talk about the first. But you would argue. I think you'd agree with me. The second one is better than the the third one. Yeah, but I'm starting to understand your point now. If you look at a trilogy, name a trilogy, either the second one's better or the third one's better. And then often what happens is you have a really good second one, the third one's not very good. You have a really bad second one, the third one's pretty, pretty good. And what are, what's your sort of rationale behind this? And incidentally, are you including films that have done more? I mean, Mission Impossible, Fast and Furious? No, those ones, they become, they're, they're franchises. Don't, don't spoil it. Like. Your focus is just kind of disappearing. <laughs> Shut up. That's not the case. Okay, Back to the Future. Which one's best? Um, back to the Future 1. <laughs> well, what do you, you want me to say? You can't choose Back to the Future 1 because it's not. <laughs> it's uh, so funny. It's, <laughs> two or three, number two is definitely Yeah, two better. is better one. Yes. And then, okay, Dark Knight trilogy. Of the two or the or th- second or third. Uh, probably the middle one. I mean, the, the Dark Knight sort of transcended film didn't it a little bit because of what it represented what about the Bourne films not including the fourth uh, not including the fourth or the first <laughs> just go with it man uh, the second is definitely better than the third film yes what about The Godfather I haven't seen any Godfathers and I know I'll be pilloried and people will send hate mail my way but I am yet to I've recorded them I just haven't watched them yet I never have time well general consensus says Godfather Part 2 is one of the best ones ever yes I'm aware of it. yeah what people say how about Kung Fu Panda Phil I love the third one I think Kung Fu Panda 2 is better. But my theory is, is if you have a franchise, say say there's a new film like Assassin's Creed, would you rather have a good middle one or a really good third one? Can I say neither? I mean, I can't think of any films. I think that the w- second film generally, the thing about a trilogy is that if the first film really succeeds, what the studios probably do is say, right, Here's a contract. Give us two more. We want to make this a trilogy because it's an established format. Therefore, when the scriptwriter, screenplay guys, director get involved, they say, "Okay, well, we need to create a conflict that can now span two movies." So the second is almost always reconnecting with the first and therefore bringing back characters you love, but setting up a new threat without resolving it. So it's a transitional film. Generally speaking, you know, the Matrix trilogy, obviously, Reloaded is a transitional film. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back is a transitional film. I think that's often why the second one feels best, because it has a lot of promise left in it. They don't wrap everything up. So you're expecting the third film to close it off. And you leave the film thinking, that was amazing, amazing. I just want it to end now. It's helpful. <laughs> but what about the other, other direction, though, when a second one doesn't work and it's not very good? Well, then rarely do they get the funding to continue. But then there are films which are, undeniably, the second one hasn't performed as well, is not very well put together what as like? much. Well, I'm thinking Iron Man 2 particularly. That, okay. was, a, that was not regarded well. It was it, People said it was a bit slow, a bit I think the popular meandering. opinion is that 3 is worse than 2, actually. Really? I, mm. I'm surprised. I don't think that is the case. Well, perhaps what you're talking about is a personnel thing, because when you bring someone in 
and the studio is thinking, right, this guy's going to take this franchise to new heights. If it doesn't work, then what they tend to do is get a new writer, director, maybe even new cast members to try and transform it. And often it's a bit like the David Moyes thing, right? David Mo- Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson, super successful club around the world. David Moyes comes in as the chump. <laughs> Sorry, David. Whoever knew could not possibly hold on to the mantle of Sir Alex Ferguson because he was a titanic personality and all that sort of stuff. And even though David Moyes' record is fairly, you know, consistent with all the other managers Manu has had, he's still regarded quite poorly because he wasn't the original and the best. So actually, that took everyone's expectations down, but then it started to come back up again when they hired, who was the next one? Van Hal, wasn't it? Louis Van Hal. Louis Van Hal. And people started to think, yeah, Man United's finding its feet again. But haha, Man U fans, sorry, then he got sacked as well. <laughs> sorry, that's a bit mean. To people who don't follow football, that might not mean very much. But do you get what I'm saying? Sometimes it just serves as a way for people to use up a load of bad ideas and then inject freshness into the genre. Conversely, if the second one does well, I think that just means that they run out of steam. So if you, what with the new Star Wars trilogy, the second one is not that long away. Mm. It's this year, I believe. Yes, it is, it? 2017. That's at the end of the year. Um, you've got Rian, Ryan Johnson doing Ryan Johnson, the, the follow-up, J.J. Yes. Ab- Abrams. Do you, are you expecting that to be a good film and then the third one to be a bit rubbish? Or is it going to be not so good and then maybe they'll pull it back up? Star Wars is perhaps a bit of a lore unto itself. I'm thinking, you know, compare it to Harry Potter, for example, which just had loads of sequels, obviously. But they changed personnel a lot until they ended up with David Yates for some reason. I wonder whether it's a bit of a different beast and I think they'll just hire a different director every time. And it's quite clever, really, because it means that fans will come with different expectations every time and are willing to give it a chance every single time because they're counting on that new freshness thing that I mentioned as a way of saying, oh, it could be different this time. So in other words, I don't think it really matters what kind of job Ryan Johnson does. Mm, Interesting. And certainly, what is your favourite trilogy, would you say? Well, I would say Star Wars, but actually Lord of the Rings, I think, is the trilogy I would come back to again and again as a consistently filmed and performed piece of work and you know unique because it was all filmed at the same time of course and then edited into the separate chunks so probably Lord of the Rings yeah I mean it's a boring answer but there you are no but I do think you're pretty much on the money I think Lord of the Rings is one of the the few ones which doesn't really have a dip in quality I wouldn't say well and I think it's because it was written no new personnel no no sort of like we need to up the stakes it's just Let's tell this completed trilogy. I'll tell you one thing it did as well is that because it was filmed over that period, but altogether the technology and the style of filmmaking remained the same. Whereas one thing with the Matrix films, for example, is that clearly when it gets to Reloaded, there's been massive advances in CGI technology. And that's how you end up with the crazy cloned Agent Smith fight scene, which at the time was cutting edge and now looks atrocious. It looks like a video game scene. But Lord of the Rings didn't have that problem. It remained exactly the same. So whether you think it's ropey, good or whatever, at least it all sort of hangs together. Interesting. So trilogies get uh, affected by time as well. Well, imagine that. I think we've pretty much exhausted everything that can be wrung out of trilogies. Well, yeah, I was try, I was try ledging. <laughs> you know, I got it. That's a good one. That's a good gag. Don't don't roll your eyes at yourself, Phil. <laughs> be strong. I was trying my best. Anyway, listeners, I'm curious. What's the best trilogy in your mind? What is it better to have? Is it better to have a good second one or a good last one? Yeah, you've you put the pieces together. <laughs> superbellybros at gmail.com, at superbellybros on Twitter. Thank you very much, Phil. And sorry if I didn't run with it in the way that you hoped. You never did. I did my best. You I did my do. best as well. I tried really hard. You can tell I did. Uh, all right, moving on. You sort of spoiled the best monster intro, Phil. I don't. You've not left me with many jokes to make. 
Well, could you do an impression of a truck? A truck? <laughs> Would you like me? That's a good idea. I've had to start doing that with my daughter, of course, as she starts playing with all kinds of toys. Here you go. Ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> that, by the way, is like the, the lift bit at the front of a digger. <laughs> your, your turn. <laughs> Great. Well, listeners, as ever, you be the judge. I want to see Monster Trucks, a new film from Chris Wedge. Amazingly, a $125 million production that has been basically slated by every critic under the sun. But perhaps not this critic. (laughs) Uh, This stars Lucas Till, who you may remember as Havoc from the rebooted X-Men franchise ringing a bell film. Yeah, in X-Men First Class and uh, Days of Future Past, yeah. There we go. Well, in this film, he's Trip, and he's a slightly down-on-his-luck high schooler. He's sad, and we're not totally sure why. His dad's not around. He's kind of made fun of by kids in better cars than he's got, and generally, he doesn't seem to be getting on well at school. In fact, he seems to be failing biology, so he has to have a mentor, a fellow student mentor, help him out in biology, and that is Jane Levy. Do you know Jane Levy? She in Suburgatory. That's right. She's the lead in Suburgatory, a TV show. And the thing is, he keeps on missing these mentor lessons. He keeps on playing hooky or whatever it is. I think it's called a tutor. A tutor? Thanks, Phil. And part of the reason he's not around for those is he keeps on slipping off to this junkyard where he does a bit of work for a wheelchair-bound Danny Glover, who plays the junkyard owner, and trying to soup up this car, trying to make this car, this Jeep that he's got together, roadworthy again. And all of this sets the scene for a very bizarre series of incidents that begin as the local company who employs half of this small town, a big oiling company called Avatrex or something, I wish I'd written that name down, drill too deeply to try and find some oil and accidentally disturb what turns out to be a completely undiscovered enclosed ecosystem underground. And a little more than oil uh, <laughs> comes out as, <laughs> as they drill down. What you might affectionately refer to as monsters, in fact, leap out of the ground and start causing havoc. And through a series of circumstances, one of these monsters ends up meeting Trip. Uh, and his junkyard and well should we play the trailer before I say any more yeah <laughs> okay it's, it's the trailer listeners because no clips have been made available to us in our publicity little box thing but the trailer definitely gives you a pretty good flavour for the film hey Trip hey Sam you wanna see something crazy this place is sleeping out right now so have you never seen anything like this local residents have reported numerous sightings of an unidentified creature we're looking for something unusual something dangerous There's something going on here. I don't even know how to begin to explain. Take a look. He likes hiding in my truck. This thing is awesome. It's smart. It is an engine for my truck. And that right, Creech. You named him Creech? Think you can keep up with me? You see that? Show up! Aren't you curious about where it came from? I'm going to get you home and away from whoever's after you. I love you too. Charge, watch out! Now's a good time to take charge. Let go, I can see better than you. Hey, get back in there. Charge to his eye. Trip, this man might have a word with you. I'm not going anywhere with you. Yes, you are. The lobster is in the truck. I'm a scientist, I want to help you. We're a family. What do you need? Trucks. I like your truck. Thanks. <laughs> 
Ooh, there you go. A lot of fun, right? More serious than I anticipated. Do you think so? Yeah, like there's a bit, bit Cowboys and Aliens-esque. Yeah, there are little bits like that. You may have heard listeners in there, Rob Lowe, unexpectedly turning up, you know, the guy out of the West Wing and Wayne's World. Very, very famous face, at least. He's a handsome dude, man. He's ageing well. And, you know, I'm jealous of him (laughs) in that regard. Um, And also, Thomas Lennon. Now, that's probably a name you wouldn't recognise, but I would guess it is a face and a voice that you would recognise. He's in 17 again. Yes, I know exactly. He's the best friend to Zac Efron, the guy who's really rich and... And dresses up like an elf. That's right. He's got a slightly monotone voice, but very, very good comic timing. You know, he just a little aside, he's one of the most successful script doctors there is in Hollywood. I'm not surprised, actually. Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was involved in the script for this film as well. Um, but So Rob Lowe plays the owner of this oil company. Thomas Lennon is the head scientist who sort of advises him to keep drilling, even though he's aware of this ecosystem underneath. And they're sort of the bad guys yeah, the scene is set. There's a big, there's lots and lots of chases. Basically, the oil guys want to keep the the monster thing under wraps so they don't risk losing their oil interest uh, that they found. Whereas Trip and Meredith and all the buddies just want to have fun with this monster because the core element of the film, I'm sure you've just been waiting for me to say, is this monster turns out to love cars as much as Trip does. And how does that express itself, Laurie? Say the key thing. It's a monster truck, Phil. It beca- <laughs> it's really, really weird the way that the film does it. Because it, the mon- these monsters love oil. That's one of the things. The reason that they're near that oil reserve is because they eat it. That's how they get their sustenance. And Trip discovers this as the monster creeps around his junkyards, taking oil out of the cans. And when some of the people from this company turn up, the monster hides, but he hides in the framework of this car that Trip is building that currently doesn't have an engine. And sort of by accident, the monster discovers that this car... Well, in fact, as Meredith, Trip's friend, observes, it's like the car becomes the monster's wheelchair. And then Trip immediately responds, no, no, it's like the monster is my car's engine. Because the monster wraps its tentacles around the wheel spokes. It sticks its head through the, uh, what is it, the carburetor or whatever it the is? The bonnet or whatever. Bon- yeah, yeah, yeah. And it drives. Like, Trip is some kind of mechanical genius. And he <laughs> invents all these ways of controlling it to tell the monster to go faster or to go slower or to turn left or turn right. And literally, it is a monster truck. It's, it's really the most strange. convoluted way you could ever get to get to the literal translation of it a monster It is really truck. odd. And uh, you know, what I've heard is that this is one of those things where I think one of the writer's sons said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a film which is about monsters in the truck? And you can see how they've worked really hard to make it Bing! V- exactly vaguely a feasible idea. That is the weakest element of the film, I think, by far. But you forgive it pretty fast because right from the outset, this is a film that is full of well-worn tropes, incredibly well-rehearsed ideas. There is nothing in this film that is challenging or new. But as we said last week, Phil, with Why Him, that doesn't necessarily mean... That, that, that's a problem. doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Laurie has got the apologetic eyebrows and shoulders going. I think Laurie really likes this film, listeners. Phil, I mean, I let me put it to you this way. This is the first film of 2017 that has elicited tears from me. Tears? I know! <laughs> what do you <laughs> mean? I don't understand why. <laughs> I found this film fun, uh, endearing, and actually genuinely moving because the characters are so shallow and well-established that you're free to sort of input your own feelings into them do you know what i mean like they they do their job pretty well empty vessels for you to fill 
but they're well crafted empty vessels so th- and they they hint at the sort of things that might be going on behind uh, under the surface especially uh this guy lucas till who i never really noticed in the x-men films i think he does a fairly good job he's got a tough life his dad isn't around his dad's a bit of a loser in this case and he's trying to make something of himself school isn't working out for him but he loves cars and you kind of believe that, you know, he's got a good heart in there somewhere, but life hasn't really dealt him that fair a hand. And then this girl, Meredith, who's sort of quite uptight, she's quite enamoured of this guy, finds him quite en- enigmatic and mysterious. And she sort of wants to understand him. And through the course of the film, she learns about him. And it, it's just it's just very, very well constructed. I think it's a very well directed film because it very rarely drags. It's immediately obvious what all the stakes are, what every character's motivation is. It's immediately obvious where it's going. But somehow it isn't unenjoyable for all that. If anything, it becomes more enjoyable because you know exactly what to expect. So uh, if uh, we were to pop the hood on this film yes. and uh, look at the engine, would you say that the script is a good script? Well, there's a couple of things I specifically noted down. and Let, let me read a couple of these to you, which I think give you an example of what kind of script it is. I'm not going to say it's a really great script. It's not going to win any awards. It certainly won't win any awards looking at the critical reception. But I think it's a cut above what you might expect. That wheelchair line I gave you, I thought was actually pretty clever for this girl Meredith to say, oh, it's like the truck's a wheelchair for it. And for him to say, no, it's like the engine for my truck. That tells you exactly how it's working. And it expresses something about their characters and also something about the monster as well. Do you see what I mean? I think that's a clever couple of lines of dialogue, better than you might think. Similarly, there's a scene in which this guy, Thomas Lennon, uh, is joining them and helping out. And he tries to climb into one of these monster trucks at one point. And while he is chatting to Lucas Till's character, what they're doing is explaining their plan, giving the audience an info dump, a bit of exposition. But to kind of liven it up, he climbs into the car through the window and it's kind of this strange little bit of physical comedy. And as soon as he sits in, the expositional dialogue comes to an end and he opens the door and says, oh, that opens. And the joke is, why did I just climb in through the outside when the door actually opens? And it's just like, okay, you're nodding at me like with a very sceptical look. But that's the kind of deft touch of a director and scriptwriter working in sync that isn't needed, is it? They could have just had the flat expositional dialogue and the guy get into the car, but they specifically did it to show a creative bit of physical comedy. Just do something with that bit. Yeah, a little bit of the necessary parts of the film. It didn't take away from the exposition, and in fact it made it more interesting. I think the film is full of little moments like that, little moments that are are cut above that will be completely ignored because everyone thinks it's a stupid idea and it's a very basic movie. What about the monsters? Are the monsters endearing? Well, I think the, uh, the first thing I'll say is that the CGI for the monsters is pretty good. They they're quite sort of cuddly and fairly original. They're a bit like a giant squid with a face, uh, sort of combined with an orca. They make whale noises, but it, it looks quite good for as far as you know a bloke interacting with a, a green screen and a tennis ball being held around. You know the kind of thing I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. The relationship's all right. It is certainly going to work for any children who go and see the film. They're going to relate to this thing like it's a big friendly dog. Now, knowing you, Laurie, and knowing and sort of knowing a bit about this film. I get the sense that maybe what's really worked for you is there's a, a bit of optimism in this film, a bit of lightheartedness. It's sort of good, honest fun. Is that the case? Yeah, basically, Phil. You're, I mean, I'm very transparent with this kind of thing. I just felt so glad that films like this are being made anymore because there was a period where loads of movies like this came out. They're very high concept. You know, it's a one and done thing. There's going to be a sort of CGI special. There's a very obvious arc where an ordinary kid meets something extraordinary. They get on well, but then eventually there's a passing of the ways. You know the kind of thing? There were so many films like that for such a long time. 
And I just thought that will never happen again because we're so busy doing things like the rubbish Pete's Dragon remake, which is basically the replacement for this. What, the, one, the one which everyone loved except for you. I hated it. I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> if you put these two films side by side, I think it's a really good illustration of what I mean because Monster Trucks doesn't have very high ambitions. It's not trying to emotionally hit you. It's not trying to play Sigur Ross and make you weep. It's just trying to be fun, but put in little elements of truth and reality And that actually did make me (laughs) well up. And it's all to do with this kid having moments with, you know, his dad that go wrong and then having moments with a new sort of surrogate father who comes into his life and does actually take the time to look after him. That is a real authentic thing to happen in a movie. I'm so glad to see it there. And so I think you're right. It is optimistic. It doesn't stop it being a bit stupid in places. So there are moments where to live up to the film's title, this truck does some monster trucky things that should be landing everyone in prison double <laughs> in double time, right? Like it's ridiculous. There's a couple of scenes where the car goes out of control because when you feed this monster gasoline, because of the chemicals they put in gasoline, it's not pure oil, it drives the monster hyper. And so the monster's a bit out of control, smashing into other cars and like riding over other cars. Is there some serious property damage? Yeah, well, and some probable, <laughs> very lethal damage to the people driving some of these cars. Oh, no. But the film just skates through all that because it's irrelevant. The only purpose to have those scenes in there is to see the hero do, do something cool, like do a flip round a canyon wall or stop a bad guy in his tracks. It's not concerned with real reality. It's concerned with real emotion, I think. I put it like that. I feel like I've gone on too long about what's essentially a very silly <laughs> What's the grade? Um, what's the grade? Well, I, for me, it gets a B plus. I, I really did quite like it. And I would say to families out there, you know, I, I think this is just perfect for kids that are quite young through to sort of early teenagers. It'll captivate their imagination and the relationship between the boy and his monster will stir the hearts a bit. The relationship between the boy and his dad will probably get them thinking and probably get some of the parents blubbing in the way. I hope it will get some parents blubbing in the way that I did. (laughs) Otherwise, I look like a complete wet, uh, damp rag, whatever the phrase is. So anyway, if I haven't convinced you that it's better than what everyone else is saying, then I have failed you all. Well, you sort of have convinced me that maybe it is worth seeing. I, I kind of... The impression I was getting was it was one of those sort of generic, cheesy things. It's definitely generic, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Mmm... Well, there you go. Listeners, if you are at all interested and you do happen to go buy a ticket and you like it, let Laurie know. I'm sure he'd be glad to hear that. If you didn't <laughs> really like would, it. you know. If you hated it, then tell me too. Yeah, and do say why as well. It's not... I just want to remind listeners, we love hearing your opinion. So even if you do give us a plus one or minus one, just give us a little explanation why as well. We'd love to be able to explain to the rest of the podcast listeners That's what right. exactly our audience is thinking. And I do apologise for going on so long over such a simple movie. Laurie out. Finally. Bernard Face Cheese, is that your real name, man? Thanks for supporting us on Patreon, uh, Anne. Hey, hey, we're back with emails, quite a few to get through, so shall I jump straight in, Phil? Yes, do, do, do. Was that a, a Patreon jingle? Yes, of course it was, yes. You, you know it was. Listeners, you can have your very own awkward <laughs> attempting to be enjoyable jingle for a very low sum <laughs> on patreon.com slash superbaileybrace. It's a literal reward. It's not a pay-as-you-go sort of scheme. No, it's no, a, no, no. It's no. a thank you. That's what it is. Yes. Okay. David Samuel. Hi, David. He got in touch uh, to say Rouge One thoughts. Thanks very much. <laughs> Rouge One? Mm. I haven't seen that film. <laughs> no, it's brand new, actually. I don't know. It's Disney's Rouge One. I'm sorry, David. You know, it's only a gag. I'm sure it was written on the phone. 
Sorry I missed the boat on this, only just seen it. I have loads to say. And listeners, I'm slightly banking that quite a lot of people will have seen it by this point. I'm not going to give any direct spoilers based on what David said, but I'm going to give you an overview of his thoughts. He says, Tone, it was a war movie and as such jarred with the expected tone of space adventure. It was gritty and dark and really sad. Secondly, visual themes of Japanese samurai epics. The obvious being the blind Donnie Yen who's mystically capable, but then the other chap being a big guy who carries a bottle around and seems a bit cynical and drunk. It's got a sort of Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai sort of vibe, Well, that's it? exactly what he's talking about. He says it feels it's almost an Akira Kurosawa movie already. Must respectfully disagree, David. <laughs> there we go. Uh, moving on. Expectation. Someone who doesn't know the original films didn't realise Peter Cushing was CGI, really? Wow. Okay. I thought I couldn't get away from it. It was like a weird sort of haunted house horror show <laughs> in front of my eyes. But I, I guess, felt like yeah. the effect was being done live. That's the thing. It felt like it was moving around and they were sort of, you know, when you get like a Having Snapchat. to try and match it to yeah, his face. Yeah, Snapchat <laughs> filter. You know that thing where it's like kind of locking on and it sort of glitches a little bit. Yeah, I do. That's what I felt. But then, I mean, if someone who hadn't seen the original films didn't recognise it, then I guess they've actually achieved exactly what they set out to do. Maybe maybe it's much better than we realise. It's just we're very familiar with Peter Cushing's face. It could well be that. Uh, and David, I, I, he's got a lot more in there. He suggested a rewrite for Jin Erso as the captain of a loose cannon rebel crew. Uh, but I can't give away all that, David. So instead, I'm going to skip to the end. Uh, he does say, does Obi-Wan Kenobi get a sneeze when the city's awake, wiped out by the Death Star? Which is a very good point. I haven't <laughs> what, It's in, in New well, Hope. In the New Hope, it says, I felt a great disturbance in the force. When the planet has been destroyed, and it's a big deal. Obviously, he's never felt anything like that before. What does it, he says? As if millions of voices crowd out in terror. So surely he would have felt this as well, but... So what? And this would be expressed like a, a little sneeze, well, a little tickle in the nose. Well, that's what wondering. Yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, those are my thoughts. Let me know what you think, even if it doesn't make the show. Well, David, we made it make the show. That was great. I really enjoyed, and unfortunately we haven't shared it, but I did enjoy the rewrite as well. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah, it was a good one. All right, thank you very much, David. Okay, a couple of notes here from Gavin. Thanks for getting in touch, Gavin. Uh, first, bros on passengers, minus one for Phil. Why? Whilst he wasn't completely negative about the film, he did essentially describe it as a shallow bit of space fun to which to take your airheaded lady friend. Did you say that, Phil? I think that's not fair. If I'm going to give you, if you're going to give me a minus one, Gavin, I'm going to give you minus one. You misrepresented <laughs> me. Yeah, Phil, you can't be mean back to the listeners. He's always giving right me minus reply. ones. Gavin's emailed a couple of times. Uh, He's always giving me minus uh, ones. Whilst I agree it's no arrival, it isn't without depth or thought. There is a point, and that point is that one doesn't get to choose one's life circumstances, but one does get to choose what to do with those circumstances either to live life as fully as possible or waste it by descending into bitterness and dreams of what could have been that's very true and i'm not disagreeing with you and i quite enjoyed passengers i think i was positive about it i said it's good fun and it's worth it's enjoyable there's nothing wrong with it but i don't think it really explores that that theme those ideas in much depth it is quite shallow maybe it's one of those ones that hints at it and you come away thinking yourself but actually it's you who's doing that work. Yeah, that's what I would say. I don't think the film is achieving that, but I'm glad it, I'm glad it was a good film for you, Gavin. There we go, and he finishes off. Pratt and Lawrence work really well together, and I laughed aloud a number of times. He gives a grade. Do we give listeners grades out in emails, Phil? No. I think we should. Come on. <laughs> no. He, he has given no. it a B plus. <laughs> listeners, a make of that what you will. And he goes on, I'm listening to your 2017 trailers episode also. I feel like you're all up in Harry Styles slash Christopher Nolan's faces for an unexpected casting choice in Dunkirk. It's only hype if you, brackets the media slash man, we're not the man, <laughs> how very dare you, uh, make it so. Just treat him as an actor and only mention him as such. Well, I would if he was an actor, Gavin. He might actually be able to act, even if he can't put him next to Michael Caine and he'll look like De Niro. I can't agree with you there. If you've not seen Hannah and Her Sisters... 
You watch that film and then tell me Michael Caine can't act. Uh, is Michael Caine in this one? I love that. Oh, I love that guy. Oh, now I don't understand your point, Gavin. Okay, I'm drifting off topic. He says, P.S. Justin Timberlake was in a boy band and he worked out okay. Did he though? Yeah, but he got a load of shtick for it as well. Yeah, he's done, uh, to my mind, he's done one good role in The Social Network where he played the guy behind Napster. And he was he was nice and charming in uh, Friends with Benefits, that one with Mila Kunis. Okay. And he was in Alpha Dogs, which I've never seen, but I heard he was quite good. That was his first role. The thing is, I just saw him in a film recently called Runner Runner, where everything about that film was terrible and he was certainly not good. And then he goes, PPS, minus one for Laurie Brackett. Sorry, Laurie. Well, I appreciate Why the sorry. Why do you get a sorry? Well, I want to know why I get the minus one. He hasn't sort of attributed it. I'm, I'm guessing it's the Harry Styles Dunkirk stuff listeners if you missed that in our trailer previews episode Harry Styles of One Direction fame is cast in that movie and features relatively prominently in the trailer here's my prediction he will have a very small role in which it is basically impossible for him to do a bad job because the rest of the film will create the tone the ambiance all he needs to do is look a bit distressed is my guess I think, try and deny it Gavin I hear what you're saying that the media make it a big deal there's no way they didn't cast him to get that story circulating in the press. Do you think so? Yeah, of course. It's stunt casting. They could have cast anybody else. But then Anybody else. There's no way they interviewed everyone and thought, <laughs> who's this kid? Oh, he's <laughs> the best. There's absolutely no way. <laughs> do, you, do you think Christopher Nolan's a, a media man? It might not be him. It could be the studio. It could he be the casting He wouldn't let director. somebody... He's got enough clout as a director. He wouldn't let somebody come if in. If you think that uh, the people, the advertising teams, even the directors of these massive big blockbuster movies are not cynical enough to do that deliberately, then you're living in a dream world. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying that there aren't marketing people who would m- milk this Christopher for all Nolan it's worth. As well. He knows what he's I doing. I just don't think Christopher Nolan would be interested in ever letting anyone come into his film who it shouldn't be there. Well, I agree with you. And that's why I think I'm sure he will do a perfectly good job, but I dispute the notion that only Harry Styles can really perform <laughs> that role. Anyone else could have done it. Anyway, sorry, Gav. Thanks very much for getting in touch. <laughs> uh, then lovely email, hit, uh, tweet actually from Susie. Susie got in touch, said, at Super Birdie Bros, watching the perfect Lost in Translation. Thanks to the reminder of its brilliance from at Super Betty Bros, always chatting about it. Thanks. I think the credit goes to you there, Laurie. Well, I'm very pleased. Yeah, I think it is a wonderful film. I love it too, but you talk about it like no- nothing else. You said that when you, you raised your glass. Are you making a toast there, Phil? Yeah. Lovely. She adds, uh, whenever I watch this, I wonder why I don't watch it every day. Susie, I totally agree with you. I was trying to persuade everyone to watch it with me over Christmas and it got <laughs> shouted down. I can't believe it because my sister, you know, she hasn't even seen it. And I was suggesting it, saying, let's watch this, watch it. And no, no, no one's having She's it. She's never seen... Well, exactly, Phil. I can't believe it. That's your it. new mission, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and like, listeners, if you've not seen Lost in Translation... Give it a go. I'm tempted to say, if you don't get it the first time, watch it a second time and you'll start loving it. <laughs> if you anyway, didn't get it, it's your fault. You're not smart enough. No, that's not what I said. That's not <laughs> what I said. Okay. Angeline tweeted as well, Scorsese's epic sort of japanese religious film, in quotes, it's insights like this which keep me listening. Did I say that? You said it in the intro to last week's episode. It was, you know, a really insightful, precise description <laughs> of uh, silence, Phil. Yeah, okay. It seems to have gone down <laughs> Sorry well. Sorry about that. <laughs> Johnny Valentine got in touch to put an addendum to an email he sent to what we've been watching. And he says, a PS, sorry that we didn't get this in time for what we've been watching, Johnny. I think Phil also deserves a minus one for saying that The Lion King was an original Disney story. It's not. It's Hamlet with lions. Oh, oh come on. Come on. It's original. I, I'm afraid, Johnny, although I'd love to join you in giving Phil a minus one, I do slightly agree with him. It's a heavily adapted version of that Shakespearean tale. And it's Hamlet-esque at best. Hamlet-esque at best. Who's <laughs> rhyming now? Me. 
Confucius adds, and to finish off here, listeners, Happy New Year. I'm so glad to hear your voices again in this brand new season. And he adds here, plus one to Laurie for believing in me. I did enjoy Rogue One, but I did have those reservations. And then also he's given you a minus one. Why? I'm not sure. <laughs> Why is everyone hating on me? I'm not sure I understand the logic of what's, that. What's wrong? I thought you and I agreed on Rogue One. Yeah, we, we said very much the same things. What have I done? Oh, poor Phil. Everyone's <laughs> giving me minus one. Everyone being mean to me. Oh, Phil. It carries on. Fun fact for you about Donnie Yen in Rogue One. He was originally going to turn it down, but... Then his children found out uh, about it and convinced him to take on the job. I can just imagine them wanting him to take it. I think he's probably one of the best bits in the Rogue One, so maybe that's a good call. Yeah, I can just imagine that. I mean, your kids would want you in a Star Wars movie. If I got asked to be in a Star Wars film, I wouldn't turn that down, would you? No, 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 no. Even if it was like a really bad one. Even if it's like the Jar Jar Binks movie. Do you think you could do a good Jar Jar film? Me's so great at it. <laughs> I hope someone is listening. <laughs> uh, he also adds, loads of those people are still raving about Moana, as did I. I came across this, and that's as did he, as no other than as did I. Oh, sorry, just shut up. I came across this interesting article on how Moana is the anti-Lion King, and it is an insightful read. So, Confucius, I'm going to tweet that up for listeners to look at. Do check out the Twitter profile at Super Baby Bros. You can get some little updates and things, and also see what, what's happening on our page, you know, all the chit-chat. Yeah, it's riveting stuff, obviously. Listeners, thank you very much for being in touch. Remember, you can get in touch about pretty much anything. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much to everyone who has done so this week. If you want to add yourself onto this uh, ever-growing list of people getting in touch, you can tweet us at SuperBailyBros or you can email us SuperBailyBros at gmail.com. There we go. Thanks. There we go. It's been another long episode this week, I feel, Phil. Is that because you spoke for 20 minutes on Monster Truck? No, and this tall 20 minutes will not make it into this podcast. <laughs> I don't know what happened minutes, to me, listeners. 20 I just suddenly, minutes. I started seeing visions or something. <laughs> and it was raptures of how wonderful it was, so my apologies for that. Hope you enjoyed our thoughts on the films this week. Really, especially love to know your thoughts on La La Land, because that is absolutely dominating all awards talk at the moment. It is one of the films of the year, and certainly, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opinions around it and we'd love to hear your guys' opinions on it as well yeah definitely and just in case you're wondering why we haven't mentioned the Golden Globes this week what we're planning to do is instead of flooding the podcast with stuff on Golden Globes and the BAFTAs and the Oscars is we'll do one big awards breakdown when the Oscar results have been released are we going to say about our little broad show oh yeah that's right what did you what do we call it again (laughs) Super Bailey Broad Super Bailey (laughs) Broads the Broad ceremony Uh, yes well why don't we uh, nail our colours to the mast and say that we will do that we'll do a Super Baby Bros Awards show for films in 2016 we'll We're gonna, throw that into the same thing and it'll be short it won't be too self-indulgent should we, will it? Should we open it up and say listeners can submit uh, categories do you want to nominate some stuff not nominations just categories and then you can hear what Laurie and I would pick that's a good idea that's a good idea yeah if anyone oh, thanks sorry <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it's so rare no that's a joke <laughs> Phil's, all the good ideas come from Phil trust me uh, if anyone has listened to this point of the podcast then do get in touch uh, with some categories if you think to yourself, I'd really like to know what Lauren Phil thought was the best this, then best grunt send it in. in cinema. Great, best grunt. Give us some other Phil. Best like tagline, best like quip. Yeah, very good. And you know, all the classics as well. Best editing, best acting, blah, blah, blah. We'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah, that'd be a fun one to do. The rewards. The rewards. So look out for that and look out for more movie reviews next week. We'll be with you then. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing all that stuff. Check out what we'll be watching on Friday as well. Yes, absolutely. You mean the Friday that's just gone? Can't you talking to them in the past or the future? Oh, well, and past and future. Very good. All right, thanks, listeners. That's Bye. my present to you. <laughs> Bye. 
<laughs> okay, look at that stupid bonus for you now. We've just been discussing it. Hopefully, this will be really quick because the whole episode's been long. Phil, I would like you, at, just from your memory, to sing me your very best uh, remembrance of the Blue Peter theme tune. Go. <laughs> oh, no, I can't remember. It's Go. Go. Uh, I think this is like Tchaikovsky thing. You don't start again. You just kind of jump into it. Do you want to the thing is what's so amazing about this song is I think when you start singing it you can't help but sort of keep going because it's so jolly and such a pirate but it's also nearly impossible to actually sing the notes and what you're not doing instead it's just going it's sort of halfway between talking and singing and I just noticed that the Blue Peter theme as well as being embedded in everyone's brain whoever saw that show uh, brings it out but there you go there you go bring 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 hello hello Laurie. who's this i'm a monster what are you doing calling this number i've come to say you have a silly face well that's incredibly rude and how would you know you're on the end of the phone i could see you through the lines of the phone what judith get the <laughs> shotgun <laughs> ah, I'm a monster. <laughs> <laughs> Explain yourself, Phil. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I like this one actually. Yeah, and I'm, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm. No, not nominate. No, not, not. 